Tonight we'll be going on in Daniel chapter 8, but next week we'll be in 9. And I want to encourage you to read through 9 a couple of times. It is one of the most vital messages that God has given us. Uh, at first, I believe it. we are probably on the edge of being part of 9 right now. Secondly, it really lays out the end. And I said last week in chapter 8, Daniel was told by the Lord that the end, this is the end. Well, that wasn't the end of, the, there are two ends. That wasn't the end of the Lord coming uh, and everything coming together. But it could have been. And so that's a hard thing to say, but that's exactly right because what he's pointing to is that Daniel lived in the moment when the Savior would, the King would return to live his life on earth and to offer salvation to all. And we're going to uh, Easter week, we're going to do Easter week. And uh, that is, uh, if you have friends, uh, that's a great time to ask them. We'll go through each day and what we'll find is that on the beginning of what we call the Passion Week, our Lord offered to all the world and those that would hear to be their king. And he offered it particularly to Israel because he is truly Israel's king. The others will come under the aegis, aegis of, the, of Israel itself when it is the kingdom of God on earth. Of course, he offered that on what we call Palm Sunday. I have a close friend, that uh, Harold Honer, who's in the presence now, and I love Harold. Harold's one of the bright guys that has lived in our generation. He was head of our doctoral program at Dallas Seminary, close friend, and he has a PhD, he has several PhDs. His one from Cambridge in England is the most important. Uh, he, could talk about that, but he really made an impression over there. He is with the Father now, but back to Harold. Harold thought that he thinks that it's not Palm Sunday, it's Palm Monday. <laughs> and we've had, he, he wrote the two best books, I think, on the life of Christ that have been published. The one I'd recommend to you is The Life and Times of Jesus, or The Chronological Life and Times of Jesus the Christ. And I'll bring some of these books and put them out to paperback, but it was his doctoral dissertation at Cambridge, and it is very readable. It's wonderful. But we didn't agree on that. I still hold Palm Sunday heels, and I, I didn't get to talk to him, but if I could, the Lord had it, I'd say, well, you know, tell me who, which of us is right now. <laughs> so anyway, we will be dealing with Passion Week, and we will bring some things to show that come from that time period. And I believe we will be through with Daniel by then, and that probably usually is the last uh, time for this time. We'll pick it up again in the fall. We may do a couple of things this summer that are special, but uh, we will we will look into that. But we will be going through Easter week. We know if something comes up, I feel we need to get involved with. We're in a very precarious time right now, and um, we are seeing things happen that uh, we may need to meet again and just talk about them before the Lord. We'll see how that comes. Today we are going on, as I said, in Daniel chapter 8. And remember, this is the first time that the, the Lord says to Daniel through one of his angels, the, this is the end. But the end he's talking about is the end of that particular issue of both Jew and Gentile on earth, the Israel and uh, the uh, actually the four Gentile nations. And at the end of that, what God calls the end, which starts, the end period starts in 4 B.C. What happened in 4 B.C.? Jesus was yeah. born. That is exactly right. Our Lord was born. And at the end of that, he offers, and that's why Palm Sunday is so important, he offers the kingdom. And 
they rejected, of course, and so that tells us there's another end coming. The other end will be when he comes back and he will offer those who have not rejected him and they will accept. And believe me, this time there'll be nobody saying, we're going to get you. They'll be hiding as uh, the scripture says, they'll be saying the rocks will be our hiding place. Uh, we got to know an opera singer who I thought was marvelous. And I loved, uh, this was back in my engineering days, we got to hear him and know him well. We just shook hands with him. His name was Jerome Himes, and he had a spiritual he would sing that no hiding place down there. The rock cried out, no hiding place, no hiding place down here. It was a great time. This evening we're going to go on with, in a sense, sort of the second half of Daniel chapter 8. What we looked at in the first half, of course, is the coming on of one new Gentile nation. Actually, uh, you think of this as a, a one of the world empires, and it surely was, and the end of another. Remember, there were four. And they are pictured as a statue of gold and silver and bronze and, and finally at the end iron and clay. And that was in Daniel 2. When we get to Daniel uh, 7, we run into them again, only this time they're animals. Well, the animals keep going into chapter 8. And the first thing we deal with in chapter 8, of course, is a ram. The ram is the, as it were, the second of the world empires that will be on this earth. And that empire will be taken over by, the ram has uh, two big horns, one's bigger than the other, which means it stands for the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Persia part was, as we said, much more powerful than just the Mede part, and eventually it took over everything. But then another animal steps onto the stage of human history, and it was a goat. When I see that, I always think of Mark, who my youngest son's West Point grad, and we go over and watch the Army-Navy game every year, and we still do that. And Army has a mule, but what, is, what does Navy have? A goat. They have a goat, yes. <laughs> and anyway, so we, we enjoy doing that. Well, God has a goat in our future, and it's the Greek Empire, and we're going to deal with that today because that is the, as it were, the third empire, but it really is the one that is going to, as it were, prepare the way for the coming of the king. And the fourth empire will come on board, and that is Rome. And we'll say a bit about Rome. I love Roman history, and my wife's sitting here in case I start waxing and going off into Rome and all that. She keeps me from doing that, but we do want to know something about it. But we're going to start this evening. We looked, as we said, I want to review just a little bit about the uh, first the ram, which was... Persia, basically, and then the goat. And they run into each other in mortal battle very early in the game. Uh, we want to know first that Greece was the most effective of all of the empires. It influenced everyone, and we are influenced by it today. I'm influenced because I read Greek every day. I love, I love Greek and I'm reading a New Testament. Uh, but there are other things that we're all doing because of the things the Greeks left us with. Now, the things we see in the scripture that they left is that they, even at the very beginning of these four empires, Babylon was the first one, and at that very beginning, they had already, the Babylonians were sort of like the Romans, they were eclectic. So if they saw something they liked, they took it and they said, that's ours. And so they, they liked a lot of things that the Greeks did. First, they liked Greek architecture. Secondly, they liked the way the Greeks carried on business. 
Thirdly, they like Greek culture. In fact, if you went to ancient Babylon, and I've I lost my pictures of the dig at Babylon when I lost that little computer. But if you go there today and it's still there, you're going to see a Greek city that is of Greek architecture. You're going to see Corinthian columns and Ionic columns and Doric columns and all of those coming together. The other thing you would see is that the musical instruments that the Babylonians used were basically of Greek origin. So Greek had, Greece had a great culture before they ever became world beaters. And so they had, they had uh, Greek instruments. Thirdly, as we said last time, they also had the international lock on finances, just like today we have had it with the dollar. I think we're about to lose that now. Uh, we don't know where we're going to be. We'll think about that later. But anyway, but in Babylon, they call their major uh, piece of, uh, of, of currency, and it was usually uh, copper. Sometimes they, they'd hike up the, the value by making one in silver. Don't think they ever made any gold, but they call that basic like we had, we talk about the dollar. Well, what dollar? Well, this is a $10 bill. Well, this is a 20 or whatever. Well, they call theirs the Kesed Yavin. And Kesed is uh, the uh, uh, word for uh, silver, and Yavin is the word for fun or money, a piece of money. And so they had that. But the second thing we want to know about the uh, the empire of Babylon is that they uh, did very well for a short time and basically they did very well under their first, actually their second great ruler in this is called the second time, the second Babylonian empire and of course that the uh, one that was that, that person was not Nabonidus who was the first one of the Second Babylonian Empire, but his son, and we call him Nebuchadnezzar. That's in their language we would pronounce it Nebuchadrezzar, and uh, so he was, and he became a believer. You will meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, and he really came to the Lord. And it's an amazing reading to find out about him. But after him, the Greeks. Uh, decided they were tired of some of the things that were going on and they fought five battles. The Greeks fought five battles with the Babylonians and I'll just give them to you quickly. Uh, they fought a lot of other battles before that, the Greeks did, and uh, we won't go into those. I, I was working on yeah, uh, graduate work uh, a big chunk of my graduate work was in the ancient Greek Empire. And, uh, th there are a lot of interesting things. We're only going to take the part that relates directly to where we're going in Daniel 8. Where we're going is we're seeing a period when the Greeks uh, took over from the, the uh, uh, Persians. The Persians took over from the Babylonians. And uh, so we are, we are picking that up now. We're not saying much about the Persians. They came after the Babylonian Empire and Nabonidus uh, was the last Babylonian king we know about. There was another one called Belteshazzar. And I just want to mention him a minute. One thing I'd like to help us uh, work with and, and understand is how we can prove or demonstrate that God's Word is perfectly accurate. And that is really important. And if we have to come back and do other things with this, but I'd like to mention that tonight, and I want to do it, and a good time to mention it is when we come to the uh, end of the Babylonian Empire. And all of the history we had on that, all of the uh, cuts, the uh, engravings the, uh, that were on buildings, on 
in, on, in scrolls on, on uh, ovelets and so forth, said that the last king of Babylon, of the Second Babylonian Empire, was uh, Nabonidus. But what does Daniel say? Who is ruling in Babylon when we come? Belshazzar. Belshazzar, that's right. And we uh, did not, in fact, until very recently, this was one of the things that the people who do not believe in Daniel as being the word of God and accurate. Uh, by the way, they, you don't hear that much today because of what I'm going to tell you. But if you were going to uh, a theological school in, say, 1850, AD 1850, uh, you would read that, well, the, this Belshazzar really didn't exist. He was a figurative, he was a mythical figure that they put in, that the Jews put in to make them look better. Then something happened about 1865. At that point, Babylon was being governed by the British, and the British governor general was in, spent most of his time in the Fertile Crescent, there at the, near the ancient site of Babylon, and he was an amateur archaeologist. He loved to get in the dirt, like me. My wife knows that. Anyway, he was digging on one of the towers, and he had a team with him, and he came up with a very small obelisk. It was a four-sided piece, actually a four-sided piece. It was there three. And, on, and it had writing on each of the side. It was sort of like a, uh, one of our little computer pieces that you just plug in. It has a lot of stuff on it. Well, this one had a lot of stuff on it. And one of the things it had on it, it was from, we know from the way it was, the form of the language and the uh, all that we were, other things that we read, it came from the time of the Second Babylonian Empire, the time of Belshazzar and Nabonidus. But Belshazzar, remember, was a figment. We were told of every of some crazy Bible believers' imagination. But when they got that thing and read it. It said on there that ruling for me was Belshazzar, because I enjoyed my reign at Timnah. Now this guy was no dummy. He, he could see things falling apart, and uh, this is Nabonidus, and he's a, he's at Timnah. Timnah is out in the Arabian desert, but it's an oasis, and they had a beautiful palace. And Babylon went down. He just stayed there. As far as we know, he never left. He just had his retirement out there. But that said, and it nailed it, and uh, I was talking to Bruce Walkie, who was my professor and a close friend of Old Testament, and we were discussing this very thing because we had planned a trip to Babylon with students. We were only going to take 12, and I was all excited, but then uh, something happened. We, something, the, uh, well, the, the Iran became a Muslim caliphate and that so we didn't go we didn't like prison so we didn't go anyway what this this obelisk said was that he his grand his he called him his grandson it's actually it was probably accurate his grandson belshazzar was ruling in the city of babylon and i asked bruce i said well what does that mean to the unbelieving scholarly world he says Jim, there's a strange silence hanging over the work around Babylon. <laughs> and I thought that was great. And so we, we have that. We have a, what happened there. And that was really at the end of the Babylonian Empire. Who put them down, by the way? Do you remember? It's the next group. The Ram. Yeah. Oh, we had Wasn't that the Medo-Persians? Yes, Medo-Persians. Exactly. Medo-Persians. And they, they came on, and Cyrus was the great leader of that. We won't spend a lot of time with that. But as things went on, the Medo-Persian Empire lasted for a while, but when Cyrus was gone and some of the better people that led were gone, they began to uh, have problems. They were always trying to take over everything, and the Greeks got tired of that. And so the Greeks... 
the Greeks, remember, Greece was divided, and you see this here, into two areas, but they were all Greece at this point. And here's Greece, and you have Lower Greece, which is Achaia, and Upper Greece, which is Macedonia. And so they started having battles with the Persians. Their first one was the Battle of Marathon. And the Battle of Marathon was, I'll just give you a quick look, it was right about here. And they fought, and the Greeks won the Battle of Marathon. The second one was the Battle of Thermopylae, which is really not far from Athens. And there have been a lot of movies made about that battle. It's the one where you have Leonidas with 300 against 7,000, if you will, uh, Persian troops. And though they didn't win, it, it appeared the Greek claimed, I mean, the Persians claimed the victory. Most historians agree that it was a draw. It was, they, they fought them bravely. The third battle is the Battle of Salamis. And the Salamis, Athens is right here. Let's see if I keep myself steady enough to do this. Athens is right here, and the, uh, the Bay of Salamis is right beyond Perea, there uh, on the, uh, that side of Athens. And that was a bay, and it was a naval battle. And this was one that the Delphi Oracle, the Oracle of Delphi, a lady, by the way, who kept being passed down, and she said that they were going to win that battle because they were going to have wooden walls. And so the Greeks in Athens, because they realized that's probably what they were going to shoot at, who had built all kinds of things on the Acropolis. And if you've not been to on a Greek, if you can do it, do it. It is worthwhile. But anyway, they, you have all these buildings on the Acropolis, but they built a wooden wall, a very substantial, all the way around the top of the mountain that the uh, Acropolis of Athens stood on. Acropolis, of course, means in Latin, high place. And this was... Where they, and they built a wall around. The problem was the, the gal was right about the wooden side, but it wasn't the wall. What was it? Boat. Ships. That's ships. right, the ships. The Greeks had these very slim, very fast ships. And the Persians, like everything else they do, were sort of big and stodgy, and they just beat the stuffing out of them. The next battle is really the Greeks, and they won that one. The next one, the Battle of Plataea, Plataea is very close to Athens. It's right up. It's right up about here on the coast. They, the Battle of Plataea, the Persians actually were not fighting as much as they were retreating. They decided it was time to go home, and so they start on and they cross the Aegean Sea right about here, and they go over to. This is the area that was controlled by the Persians, the Asia Minor today. And they went to a city that was very close to uh, Athens. I mean, not Athens, but Ephesus. Ephesus is about uh, 35 miles from the Aegean Sea. It's right about here. But there, they, uh, there was a town right there. It's not no. There's a town there. It's not called the same thing near uh, Ephesus. And, and at that town. The town was called Mikali. At that town, the uh, Greeks beat them again so bad that they retreated all the way back. And the Greeks finally stopped chasing them. So basically, you now have the, the, uh, the uh, Persians are still there, but they are falling apart by the, you know, every new season. And the Greeks have gotten stronger and stronger. And that brings us to where we stopped last time. And I'm going to, I was going to talk about, and I'm not going to do it, uh, we can do this some other time, other great things about the Greek Empire and uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. I've had to spend a lot of time with these three guys, so <laughs> sorry about that. But I do want to go on to where we're going to pick it up again. And we pick it up again when we come in this, uh, in the scripture to uh, the, uh, as it were, 
the uh, coming of probably the greatest military leader that we've ever seen on the planet. And uh, that, uh, that was not guided by the Lord. I think David was probably God's man, was the greatest one we've seen. And so we want to look at that, and we will begin to uh, look at it. And let's see, we will pick it up at verse 9. Well, the male goat was who? Verse oh, 5 is the male goat. The male goat, okay, who? Alexander the Great. He's the goat. Yeah, yeah, let's pick it up. I got ahead of myself. I was going to jump in at 9. Go ahead. <laughs> Phil, why don't you start at 5 then and read for us down through... Go ahead and read down 2 uh, through 8, okay? And then we'll work from there. 5 to 8. Yeah. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Well, we're in the middle of this prophetic zoo parade, and we now have come to the goat. Now, the goat is something else, and uh, this is what we're going to talk about. And uh, can anybody uh, tell me who you think the goat is? Alexander. Yeah, that's right. It's Alexander. Alexander <coughs> was born in 356 B.C., his father was named Philip of Macedonia. And he's a fascinating, his father was fascinating. His father took over all of what we call the continent of Greece, that is Achaia in the south and Macedonia in the north. He took it all over. In our lifetime, in fact, about 15 years, maybe 20 years ago, I didn't look this up, ago, they made a huge discovery up in Macedonia a group of basically German and Italian archaeologists uh, were working on a dig and they found the tomb of Philip. It was incredible. I mean, it, it is really something. And if I, ever find, I, I need to find a short article on it. If I do, I'll give it to you. It's worth reading. But anyway, he, he took over that. But then he, he uh, was assassinated by members of his own army in uh, 336, 336 B.C., and Alexander became king. Now, Alexander, as I said, was born in, uh, as it were, 356, and he becomes the uh, leader in 336. Now, how old would he have been? 20. 20. Can you think about it? This kid is 20 years old. But he must have been something. The best book I think on Alexander, best short book, unless you want to read a 15 or 20 volume set, was written by a lady named Agnes Seville. And if you ever want to get it, just, uh, you know, that you can get it. You, I think it's still in print. She does a really good job. I, I got the idea she was sort of in love with Alexander, even though he's a long way from him. But it's a pretty well done book. I thought it was very, very good. Anyway, so you have Alexander who now is going to push beyond Greece. They're controlling Greece. And the, he's consolidated the power. And he is going to, as it were, uh, start taking the enemy on. And of course, the enemy that's still hanging in there is the ram, who doesn't have any horns now, or Persia. And Persia, remember, you've got to get across. Greece is Europe, 
and that's Greece right here. Persia is not. It is, is Asia Minor, but this is Asia. And I'll show you where they, something about that in a moment. At any rate, uh, Alexander developed an army that was, in that time, really not all that big. He had 30,000 infantry, and he had 5,000 cavalry. But I'm going to tell you, there could, nobody could stop this group. And apparently, it was basically him. That's part of what I love. He was a great leader, and in many ways a great man. It's just really sad he never came to know the one who is truly great. But he, his men loved him. And before they would go into a battle, he would walk down the lines, and they, they, they didn't shake hands, they grasped hand on arm, hand on arm, they just braced arms. And he would, you know, uh, uh, encourage them and speak to them, and he, they said that he just electrified everyone. And he really never lost a battle. His first battle, he wanted to get back, get the uh, Persians out of the way. He doesn't eliminate them totally, but he drives them basically out of most of Persia. They end up in, in Egypt is where the Persian royalty end up. At any rate, they, they start, and what he does, he's got to hit them over here. This is Persia. This is the area, which we call uh, Asia Minor at this point. At any rate, he's going to go across the Hellespont. Now, I, I didn't have a map big enough to show you the Hellespont from where you sit. I've got a bunch of Hellespont maps. The Hellespont is a strait, and it's part of a, the same body that's called the Hellespont and then a couple of other kind of spots, but the Hellespont's the name that stuck. And Alexander brings his troops, his five thousand and his 20,000, he brings them up there, and what he's going to do is he is going to, or 30,000, he's going to cross. It's right here, right here, and he crosses it. It's right there. And you see, this is cut off for war from Europe. That's Europe, and this is Asia Minor. And he's going to cross that, and he crosses it at a bridge, and then he destroys the bridge. I don't know exactly why he did that, but he did. And he comes in and he defeats the Persians twice. The first time he defeats them in 334 is at the Granicus River. The Granicus River is right up here. It's right in this area, right here. He comes over there and whips them there. And then he comes and takes them on one more time. And this is the last gasp for Persia. And he takes them on at a a place that, that is uh, called Issus, the Issus, and there's no river, it's just a, a town, the town of Issus, and Issus is about right here, and he takes them off, and when he beat them there, that's when the Persian royalty decided they thought Egypt would be a nice place to live, and so most of them took off. Now, what we want to know about this guy is that as he went, and he really was when he was coming back from chasing him all the way to Egypt, and he let him go on. He comes by Israel, and Israel, of course, is right here. He comes back from Egypt, he goes to Israel, and he goes up to Jerusalem. And we think this is re reliable. There is a question of whether this really happened, but I think it did. He comes, as it were, through Judea to Jerusalem. And this is in, as I said, 332 there, uh, two years later. And the high priest knew he was coming and meets him. And he goes out and he shows Daniel, and I think this is accurate, both Daniel, the scripture, <coughs> Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, because they had the scriptures. And that's very important. This is, this is very strongly supported because the people who are the... Uh, modern-day scholars who don't believe much of anything about the Bible except it's interesting, uh, that much said, well, they couldn't have because this wasn't written. The, uh, this, Daniel probably wasn't written until the Maccabean period, somewhere around about 150 to 140. Well, they don't talk about that anymore. But anyway, he does 
he he knew what was going on. I would hope that he some way came to know the God of Israel, who was the only God and Savior. Now, the interesting thing about this is this the Greeks taking over is going to set the table for the coming of Christ. They are going to set it culturally. They're going to set it as it were uh, the uh, in the in the, in the building processes of building cities, they're certainly going to set it linguistically. The world spoke Greek. And you, you get into this and you realize that that is really the only time that basically most of the civilized world had one language. Now, of course, the Romans come in and they, they have Latin, but that became the language of law. Everything else they spoke Greek. You go to court, you speak Latin. If you didn't speak Latin, you were in serious trouble. But, but the Romans gave the roads. No, wait, I'm not going to get to Rome yet. Rome, Rome, what Rome did, almost took Phyllis and jumped ahead and we're in the roads. I'm going to talk about the Romans in a minute, but let me just say, Rome built two great highway systems, and, uh, and we will not go into them. One, both of them go into uh, Asia, Asia Minor, in that area. And they really were the Roman, the road builders. I think one of the most uh, interesting Israel trips Phil and I had, we were over a week early, and we had a friends that were couples. I was doing an interim pastor that after I stepped out of being a senior pastor, and uh, we had this couple, I was leading this group, but we went over a week early, and I wanted them to look over Israel quick. Well, we really wound up just working up in the Galilee. But we were up at, at uh, the, uh, where did you, some, you tell me, where was our Lord's headquarters in the Gal, on the Sea of Galilee? Capernaum. Capernaum, or Kafar is a village, Naham is, is the name of a person. And so, but Kafar Naham is down at the level of the Sea of Galilee, which is about, 650 to 750, according to where the uh, feet below sea level, it's it's low. Beautiful lake, though. Some of you have been with us. It's magnificent. Well, the, the Sea of Galilee, if you go north now, you're still in a valley. It, it goes up from the Sea of Valley, uh, Galilee, but you're in the Hula Valley. And on the edge of the Hula Valley, as you come down to the rim of the lake, where Kafar Naham is, you have, as it were, these um, um, other places that you can that see, and there were homes up there. Many of them were beautiful. The Romans were no dummies. They built you know, their beautiful estates on the, on the lake. I could stay at the city of the rest of my life. Phil and I both decided we, we could stay here because it wouldn't be too bad. But we were, I, I didn't even know it was there. We were coming down. We stayed at a place there. We still, when we stayed called Vered HaGalila. And Vered in Hebrew is Rose. And Galil, of course, Galilee. The place we stayed is the uh, Rose of the Galilee. And the couple who owned it, who moved over it right after World War II and built it there, were named Rose. And so we became. Every time friends. we came, we were the key people. We got to know them. A neat couple. We loved them, and uh, they really loved Phyllis. We were we were had had Hanukkah there. You know, Hanukkah's. Uh, we'll talk about that. I think maybe we'll get to it today. Anyway, we were at Hanukkah, and here people come from all over to come to this ranch. It's beautiful, but they're Israelis. They're from either from Israel or close, and we're there, and you know, we all listen. And uh, the Mr. Uh, Rose, the, the I'm trying to think of his first name. Can't, I can't, I can't remember, sir. But I just called him the Rose of the Galilee. Anyway, he he this is place. The dining room is full, and this is the second or third night of Hanukkah, which means celebration. And he's up there on the mic, and he says, "Filisan, Filisan, where's Filisan?" <laughs> you know, and all these uh, these. Uh, Israelis are there in the hill, and the world is a Philistine. She came up, and you, you lit the candle that night. 
Yeah. Uh -huh. Two nights in a row. Two, yeah, yeah, he looked for you. Next night, I said, I want you to do it again. <laughs> so anyway, that is that was the Sea of Galilee. But you were headed to okay, show but we where found we, a road. So we had this other couple up. We're staying up there, and we're coming down to Capernaum. Capernaum. And we ran on a road. We could see it down, and the dirt had moved away or whatever. And it was one of the Roman roads. And you should have seen that road. We dug the ditch. It was wide. It was beautifully put together. And the Romans did that everywhere. And that's, that was a big part of how people got around. It was the Roman road that brought them on. At any rate. The little horn. Yeah, the little horn. We're coming to the little horn. First and, nine. Yeah, and so what we have is we have Alexander is killed. And actually, he did die. He died of swamp fever, and he was actually uh, in Babylon of all places. And there was a big Jewish community, by the way, in Babylon in the time of our Lord. The next thing we see is that uh, after he is killed, and this becomes very important to the Bible and what happens here on, Alexander's empire. He went all the way to India. If he'd, go, he'd lived enough, he'd probably come all the way. He'd probably got to Alaska, but he didn't live that long. But when he died, his empire was divided between four generals, four of his generals. And you don't have to remember this when I give any exam on it. Although I thought maybe I'll take it anyway. Ptolemyus Legus was one of them, and he received Egypt and, and Syria, which is uh, basically most of Palestine or Israel. The second one to receive Lysimachus, uh, he received Tracia, which is north of, of, uh, the, of the Greek main peninsula in Macedonia. And he received Western Asia. They jumped over with him and then he received a big part of Western Asia. Uh, Seleucid Medicator got northern Syria and Phrygia. Now, northern Syria was really most of the northern part of Israel. The other guy got part, but this general got most of it. And then the third, the fourth one was Cassandra, and he, or Cassander, he received Macedonia and Achaia. He received Greece. Now, all of a sudden, how far did we read on that? Well, we start, we ended at 8. Okay, we ended at 8. Let's pick it up now. Go ahead now, Phil, and read 9 through 14. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? And so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now we're fully into the, what we call the intertestamental period. This is all going to affect the world our Lord is born in. First thing we see is that out of one of these, the saluted actually line, comes this little horn who has a lust for land and power. And uh, he is one who uh, creates great problems. 
And in fact, uh, there was a constant battle between these four, and it usually was stirred by Seleucid, that brunch. And he particularly fought against the Ptolemies who had Egypt and Syria. And so he was a guy that was just creating problems for everybody, and that's how he's presented here. Now, he will rule his area, and then finally uh, the area of Egypt that Alexander held, and, and over his area included also Syria and over the northern, well, really over Israel down to Jerusalem. And so he was going to, he ruled, and he would rule from 175 to 164 BC. Now, when he did this, he just created chaos everywhere. First, he was fine, but he became the sort of the burning torch in that area. And he liked Israel. He did think it was a beautiful land. And he was uh, the one who, as it were, attacks and tramples the coast of heaven, which you see there in, in verse 10 through 14. Now the question uh, about that is what was the host of heaven? Yeah. yeah. Now there's two, two answers on this. And he says that... Uh, the, the one answer that some have is the host of heaven are angels. Well, angels are called hosts. The word host in Hebrew really just means army. Now, there are people that hold that these are supernatural beings he's fighting. I, I don't see how that fits in. There's a small group that holds that tightly. The host, however, does is a definite group, and they are, in a sense, God's army. And apparently the hosts in this passage are those who are the descendants of Abraham, and uh, they are the ones that the uh, people, that the, Antich the uh, Antiochus uh, fights. Now Antiochus uh, is a Seleucid, but he had another name. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, that was his, that's what he liked to be called. What is an epiphany? Anybody tell me what an epiphany is? God speaks. Huh? God speaks. Well, yeah, yeah, shines. It really means, it can mean speaking, but God shines. And it really, in this form, it's the shining one. He, and he saw himself as the shining one. Well, he, uh, the Jews, he put a lot, he, he actually, put up with the Jews and, many, and it was fairly kind to them until uh, they began to rebel against him. And they began to rebel against him because the high priest, they realized, was actually being uh, run and paid and taken care of by the Shining One. And so they revolted. And that revolt, when it started, uh, and it started in 171, as he'd been there running it four years, really upset him. And that is where you have all of this fighting back and forth, and he's crushing the host. Now, it would seem that the host here are the Israelis who are there, who are faithful to God, and he is the one that tramples them. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but... I think it's important to see because it says in verse 11, and even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. The commander of the host would be the Lord and he stops the sacrifice to the Lord. When he stops uh, that, he, uh, of course, creates uh, all kinds of problems for himself. And this host of the Lord, and let me say something else. That term is used of Abraham's descendants, host. You might write down Genesis 15, 5. Daniel, we'll go to Daniel 12, 3. And they're called the stars here, not the host, but just like they're called stars here in Daniel 12, 3. The other place they're called the host is in Exodus chapter 12, 41. 
And so he turns on the Jews, and he, uh, as we see, he, he turns on him because they turned on the puppet high priest, Menelaus, and uh, he, as it were, begins to persecute the Jews. Now he did a number of things. First thing he did that really got their attention was in 168 BC on December 15th, he did something. He sacrificed a sow on the altar at the temple. Now that really pleased everybody, you can be sure. And when he did that, that really is where he caused the Jews to decide they were going to, to react to him. But before he could really uh, get that going, he uh, had to go over to, to Egypt. Remember, he's running Egypt. And in 168, after he does this thing, he, go, he goes over to Egypt to put down the rebellion. And this rebellion is, of course, uh, the people who followed the Ptolemyist ruler uh, rather than follow him. Now, something happens here that lets a new player come on. He goes over there, Antiochus goes over, he goes over to, he's going to deal with the host or the Jews when he gets back. But he goes over to Egypt to the area, not of Cairo, it's really in Alexandria, the upper, right on the coast. And he begins to create problems and fight with Ptolemies. Well, there's another group that's come up, the fourth of the great empire. What would that be? Rome. Rome. No, that's right, Rome. See, Rome is just watching us. To understand Rome, and we'll have to come, we'll get to them next time, but to understand Rome, we have to realize that they are different than the other three. They're very different. One of their differences is they, they wanted to conquer, but they wanted to do it peacefully. They really, they like to have everything settled out. They call it Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And when they conquered a land, if that land or, or the land, most of Asia Minor, they didn't have to conquer any. They'd, they'd show up with their army and the king would say, boy, we've been waiting for you guys here. And he, he gave them he, all of those Areas where these, the seven churches that we have in the Revelation were those cities. They just gave up, gave the King Midas, you know, like King Midas and his goal. They showed up, the Romans, you know, oh, we just waited for you. And so they had that. Philippi. Philippi's a good example. They never, they didn't have an army there. They had a governor there, but he let them, if they paid their taxes and honored Caesar, they knew what they wanted. And we see that, see it in, in Corinth. And so this, this uh, situation was something the world has never seen. Now the other side of that, if you ticked them off, you were going down. And Greece had already gone under. In 163, Greece had done something and they were invaded. And uh, they were invaded by a, a uh, as it were, a uh, Greek or a Roman general who came and uh, Lysias, he came and uh, the Caesar, the, the, uh, it wasn't Caesar by then, they were still fighting with being a, a kingdom in, in Rome. But he came and he basically took Greece in 163. They took the whole Rome on Greece. The next thing they will do is Pompey will in 64, much after this, 64 BC, they will now have come to Israel, or the area of Israel, and uh, they will, uh, up in the Galilee, uh, come into that part of the country, and uh, they will finally get down to Jerusalem, and a guy named Pompey, that's P-O-M, uh, P-E-Y. He would later try to be Caesar, and they would eliminate him for that, but at that point he was one of their great generals. And Pompey comes in, and in uh, 63, he basically says, Rome now owns Israel. And they say, gee, that's a good idea. 
keep it. And so you have that happen. So these are secure at this point. And that's the Romans. The Romans were, were like a shadow that came, and if you obeyed, they'd leave you alone, but if you didn't, the shadow became a storm. We'll talk about them later. The next thing we see, though, back where we were, is our problem with our friend Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is one who uh, sacrifices a sow on 168 on December 15th, and they take after him. And they start at that point, the beginning of Hanukkah. And they defeat them. They, they as, run him out of Rome, or out of Jerusalem. And uh, they, on the 15th, uh, December 15th, they return, uh, they, uh, they uh, begin to fight him when he returns from uh, fighting over in Egypt, that is Antiochus. And that's when he does the uh, sacrifices of sow, and they were already ticked at him. So what he's going to do is he is going to fight them, and they are going to, as it were, they are going to fight with Antiochus, and they are going to lose. And they are led. It's a kind of interesting thing. It started in Jerusalem. Of course, Antiochus, he's not going to do any of the fighting. He'll have his men do it. They, as it were, uh, get into this war with him, and uh, it really didn't, Jerusalem, it sparked, but what really started it, where the Romans, as it were, uh, or the uh, Antiochus, as it were, uh, who was the Greek, tried to hold on to that part of the world, was something that happened at... Uh, a little town that Modine. was, huh? Mohadine. Mo, Mo, yeah, right, say it again. Mohadine. 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 Uh, that is where friends of ours live. It's near the airport. How many of you have been to Israel? Okay. It's near the airport. It's now Ben Gurion. It used to be Lode Airport. And it started, and what it did, what Antiochus did, he said, I'm going to take all of these and you're all going to worship Greek gods now and all of that. And so he sent his emissaries around and this guy comes to Mahadin. Mahadin is this where Susan and, uh, used to live. Anyway, he comes to Mahadin and he gets all of the elders together and some of the other people gather and he okay. says, you're now going to worship Greek gods. And we're going to begin today by you sacrificing to the Greek gods. I don't know which one, but anyway, they they are there, and uh, the guy who's the head of the town is a uh, a guy who is. Uh, uh, is this the Hasmonea? He, he's a family of Hasmonea, but his name is Mattathias, and the Hasmonean <laughs> family was the leading family in this little town, and Mattathias was the like the mayor. And he says, we're not going to do that. Well, there's one of the others who was kind of woke. Uh, <laughs> uh, he said, I'll do it. And he comes up, and old Mattathias was not all that old. He whipped out his short sword and cut this guy into little pieces, and he cut the messenger into little pieces. <laughs> and then his son took over. And his son was a, a uh, as it were, a uh, Hasmonean, and uh, he, but he received another thing. It was called Judas the Hammer, or Judas Maccabeus. And Maccabee is the Hebrew word for hammer. And he led the rebellion against the Greeks. And he got killed in, it, in the midst of it, but his brother, took them on to victory, and they basically cleaned everybody out. And that set up the Greeks being out of there, who were very military-like and wanted to control everything, to let the Romans, as it were, have a shadow government, and if you do what we ask, you can run it like you want to. That is really the setup that was there when 
uh, our Lord came. Now, when we look at this, we need to realize that um, Rome was always there. And Rome is, is now ruling the world. And they're not at their max power. They don't, they came to their maximum in about 150, AD 150, where they are just, from there they went downhill. But they, they are taking over everything there in the midst of that. And in Israel, if you played their game, you were fine. If you didn't, that was a problem. The other thing we need to know, we said this from the beginning, that the Israel, that the Romans were the eclectics. They took into, a lot of the Romans became Orthodox, followed you. Do you see this in the Gospels? They trusted in the God of Israel. The other thing you have going is that uh, a lot of the people living in the land, the Israelis at that point, many of them are in the desperado, they never came back. When they all left, you know, after the Babylonians took over from Judah, and then 722, the northern kingdom was taken captive and sent everywhere, and that was done by the Assyrians, and then the south, it's going to be in 609, their shot. But many of them had come back, and many of them had become believers. And so when the Romans took over, they let them basically run their, their own way as long as they did the basic things that they asked. And so we see this happening. We see the uh, Greeks are booted out. And you have these people now living, and they're, uh, it's a very godly people. Who were some of the godly people, Jews, living when our Lord was born? Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph, yeah. Okay, good. Joseph, we see. Who else? The parents of John the Baptist. Okay, who are who? Elizabeth and uh, Zachariah. Zachariah. Right. Yeah. He's the guy who, you know. But I have a question. How, what is the 2,300 evenings and mornings? Okay. That is the time between 171 uh, 1, when he begins to take over everything. This is when Antiochus begins to December 25th, 1, 165 BC, from 171 BC to 165 BC. This is the time when he uh, begins to take over everything and then really loses badly. And, uh, and that's when they restore the holy. And restore, they have, and that's why you have Hanukkah. Hanukkah yeah. is that at that time it was December 25th, 165. I'm going to go through this, but to do it, you got to deal with leap years and all that. I didn't want you all to go to sleep tonight, so we didn't do that. But that is it. So now we have the, the as it were, we have these folks that are ready and they are going to uh, be involved with this. Now, uh, he goes, God goes through this again because Daniel is confused. And we're, by the way, we're just touching the mountaintops of this. But I want us to understand that this is the land that the Lord is born into. Rome is over it like a covering shadow. But they are basically running their own religion. And they basically are running, their governing themselves as long as they don't upset the Romans, who, who did have governors around the way. But they had... They did have an army there, by the way. Uh, the, uh, if you ever saw the movie Ben-Hur, you remember Ben-Hur is back in Rome after he saved, uh, saved everybody in the big shipwreck he's taken to Rome. And uh, he meets Pontius Pilatus, Pontius Pilate. And he, he says, what are you, and, and Ben-Hur says, well, what are you involved with now? He says, well, I'm being sent by Caesar to Palestine, and that's what they called it. And he says, it seems like these, the rebels and the snakes and rocks just can't get along without me. <laughs> and so he's going, he knew what it was like, and he was right. And so it, they had a lot of explosion, but overall, generally, you'd have these groups that would rebel. 
but the team, the city would not go with them, or the, the capital didn't go with them, and so the Romans would deal with their with the rebellions, but they let the people basically live in peace, and that was particularly true in Greece as well, and that is what you find when he came back. Now, um, as we said, the Romans finally. Uh, brought the hammer down because the Maccabeans uh, went sour and in 63 BC we have the uh, Pompey coming and as it were taking over for Rome but it didn't change a lot. Rome still gave them a lot of opportunity for a lot of freedom. Now you can read that Daniel is upset in this interpretation. We'll just touch on it next time. And he says, really, what is all this about? And God gives him an explanation that runs down from 15. Uh, uh, I take it from Which is 15. everything we just went through. That's right. It's just out. So I'm not going to go through it again, but you can. Next time we're going to be in chapter 9. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible. One of the greatest prayers ever prayed. And... Uh, I really want us to get in that. I'm, I thank you for letting me run over a, bit, a little bit because I wanted to get through that. But we're going to do nine, and we will probably take a couple of weeks with that. Then we'll probably finish up very quickly with 10, 11. So.